Uh, thank you for the introduction. Um, so like Dr. Ayler mentioned, uh, I'm going to be discussing dual therapy and gram-positive infections. So uh, today's learning objectives will be to summarize the pharmacokinetic and dynamic rationale behind dual therapy, um, evaluate some opportunities uh, when it's seen for uh, dual therapy, and then also to propose an antibiotic regimen given a patient case. Um, I have no disclosures, uh, no conflicts of interest, and we'll be discussing some non-FDA approved indications uh, for antimicrobial therapy. So I think we're all familiar um, with this list. This is the CDC uh, prioritization list of drug-resistant organisms. But I think when we look at this list that we normally concentrate on what would be the gram-negative infections, which are listed in priority one. So our uh, CRAB, our carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter, or MDR pseudomonas, and then also our carbapenem-resistant Arabacteraceae. So if you look at the numbers, there's about 250,000 infections per year, which results in about 14,000 deaths. Um, so taking that into account, when you actually go down to our uh, higher, their higher, their priority two or their high uh, priority bird number drug resistant, you can actually see with uh, vancomycin resistant enterococcus and with methicillin resistant Staph aureus, there's actually almost double the amount of infections and even a significant more amount of deaths. Uh, these numbers have changed uh, looking back when I updated my slides from 2013 to 2019. Um, a lot of this is correlated with potentially some um, infection prevention manners um, and some other things, but we can still see that um, that gram positive still can carry a significant amount of burden of infections overall and a significant amount of deaths. Um, to go along with that, what we're also more familiarized with uh, in targeting these gram negative infections is the uh, abundance of gram negative agents um, approved since 2008 compared to gram-positive, and this is just a simple table where you can tell that really ceftaroline and kind of dalbavancin or ritavancin are, they're not even necessarily new. You could say that ceftaroline is a new agent that's been, uh, we know that dalbavancin or ritavancin kind of mimic uh, previously vancomycin, just longer acting, and then obviously today's lids um, in, co in coordinates with um, linazolid. So really once you take all these away, um, you're left just with ceftaroline. And you can see as we have um, introduced our antimicrobial agents, we have started to develop resistance. So early on, vancomycin was used in the early 70s. Um, within a 15 to 20 year span, we ended up having vancomycin resistant enterococcus. Um, then we had the introduction of linazolid, and then we have linazolid resistant cephalococcus. And you can see how this trend just continues as newer agents get developed, these or gram-positive organisms develop this resistance very rapidly. Um, so some things to consider for combination therapy are uh, what are the risks and benefits? Um, do we have an additive effect here? Do we have a synergistic effect from an in vitro standpoint? Um, do we have improved outcomes or do we have a higher kill rate? Um, do we need biofilm penetration? Um, and then also, do the benefits actually outweigh uh, the risk associated with combination therapy? We know that if we use two beta-lactams, we might um, have a higher propensity for uh, lowering a seizure threshold and thus having that as a side effect. Um, we know that neutropenias are a problem with some beta-lactams. Um, and then also, will this cause, you know, increase in antimicrobial resistance? And then also, is there data that lets us know is one combination better than another one, or is it more of a situation-dependent uh, scenario? So what I'll first start out with is going to be to clinically address, um, or the two things that we're going to clinically address are MRSA and then enterococcus species, uh, particularly focusing on fecalis and facium. Um, to start out with, we're going to jump right into MRSA. 
so to give you a brief uh, patient case, uh, CMI is a 45-year-old uh, male with a past medical history of IVDU. Um, he prevents with an infectious-like picture. Um, he started, uh, or he has a blood culture that shows Staph aureus, um, further identification pending. So he's diagnosed with a Staph aureus bloodstream infection, likely from his IVDU history. So what do we know about MRSA? Um, we know that it's asymptomatically carried by about 10 to 40 percent of individuals, even up to 50 percent in some numbers. Um, it has multiple virulent factors from toxins to enzymes and biofilm creation. Uh, we do know that uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus does create a higher mortality, up to 50 percent. that ranges from 25 to 50 than MSSA. And we do know that individuals infected or colonized are actually at a greater risk of developing decreased susceptibility to vancomycin with prior usage. So even if somebody's colonized with MRSA and we give them vancomycin, say, for an ammonia because we're presuming based upon that MRSA nares, they have a higher propensity to actually develop resistance along the way. So when we look at the, uh, the structure of how uh, Staph aureus becomes methicillin resistant, it really has to generate around acquiring uh, the expression of MEK-A, which is a genetically mutated PBP2A um, penicillin binding protein. So that's what confers um, the inability of our beta lactam, or when it, the, the, when it has the SEC MEK or the MEK-A gene uh, mutation, it actually prevents our beta lactam antibiotics from binding that area. So um, it reduces susceptibility for those, and thus you end up having um, vancomycin being able to uh, target uh, the molecule at this point in time for being a more ideal drug. So things to consider, um, uh, why we would consider combination therapy for Staph aureus bacteremia. Um, one, it does carry a high mortality rate. Um, the second point is source control versus persistent bacteremia. Um, and we do know in some of the cases um, that we will be unable to get source control. Some of our um, IVD drug users that have endocarditis, um, some patients with osteomyelitis unwilling to have, um, you know, removal of the joint and or bone or area that needs that has the infection. Um, sometimes, you know, that we actually can't find um, the actual source. So with persistent bacteremias and with persistent source control, we will have these potential increased metastatic complications, um, increased length of stay in the hospital, and some would consider potentially an increased mortality. Um, there has been some uh, studies that does show persistent bacteremia as an independent predictor of 30-day mortality, but it actually can vary um, what some people say. Some people associate three days, five days, seven days. Um, that number's really to be um, conferred by kind of clinical expertise. I tend to go with five days personally, but I know some go with three and seven. Um, obviously, the source of infection, so a high burden source, we want to consider combination therapy, just needing to get that burden of infection down. Um, and then does the data lean or favor MRSA versus MSSA? Do we know if combination therapy for one of these is better than the other one? Um, I if you look at the data now and that we're going to get into really combination therapies you know focused on mrsa just because with mssa you still have your anti-staphylococcal beta lactams and also your first generation cephalosporins that have you know shown non-inferiority to each other and are able to be readily used um so two of the uh, combinations i'm going to be discussing are vancomycin plus a beta lactam and daptomycin plus a beta lactam uh, first, we'll jump into vanc and a beta lactam itself. 
Uh, so to start out with, we'll get a little bit into reviewing the pharmacokinetics and dynamics. Um, I know plenty of us pharmacists have heard this thousands of times, and I think even physicians are probably tired of hearing about bank kinetics. The drug has been around for 40 years at this point in time, and we still debate exactly how to dose it. Um, so we do know that it does follow a AUC, MIC um, type distribution as far as um, from a PK standpoint. Um, we know that this four to 600 range shows a clinical safety, not so much an advantage efficacious wise, but a clinical safety standpoint, um, that this drug has a very high volume of distribution. So when you have uh, a heavy amount of adipose to high BMI, it's definitely going to fill those areas up first. And then as you can give more and more doses, there'll be a point in time where you have an equilibrium and we'll use the terminology, the bank will spill out or it'll be able to distribute out of those tissues. Um, it does uh, get unexcreted, um, unchanged in the kidney. So this is why we have to be monitoring, you know, what goes on kidney wise. But if we do have any infection within that area, we obviously can give relatively low doses. So what happens when you actually use a, um, actually use a, a uh, vancomycin um, against uh, MRSA and what it actually does the staph arsen itself do to try to defend itself or put up a barrier protection? So we know that uh, vancomycin targets the D-alanine, D-alanine portion of peptide uh, side chains, and it actually binds the D-terminal alanine residues of lipid 2 and prevents transglycosylation and peptidation by PVP2 and PVP2A. So small little example is kind of shown on the screen where it actually binds in within the cell wall. So what happens is, is with prolonged treatment or reintroduction of treatment, you will get particular strains that have required several genetic mut uh, chromosomal mutations. Um, so it'll mainly direct these, these genes or these mutations will mainly happen within the cell wall, within biosynthesis and the homeostasis of the cell wall. So as you continue to give uh, vancomycin, uh, you actually have this, the staph aureus in itself will actually increase um, in thickness and the architecture of its cell wall. So what ends up ultimately happening is you have uh, variability in the cell wall structure, while you also have an increase in the number of free dialanine, dialanine residues. So this is how you have your quote-unquote MIC creep is the terminology that you will hear some use. Um, this will also lead to what potentially can be your vancomycin intermediate staph aureus, and then also we know is your uh, vancomycin resistant um, staph aureus. So by doing these two measures, uh, you really uh, prevent vancomycin from getting in that cell wall. So you have this greater, thicker architecture of the wall, more bonding sites, thus the MIC creeps up. So what happens um, when you actually have, uh, this is another example of, this, of it showing just from a more focused standpoint. So you can see on the left-hand side, um, you have a bank-sensitive molecule, so it's actually able to get um, all the de-outing, uh, de downing residues with, uh, and also very well uh, readily diffuse across the septum. Um, when you actually have vancomycin resistance, it increases that cell wall architecture, as we can see here, and also increases the number of residues that needed to be bound. So you can see from a different standpoint that the actual cell wall in itself does um, increase uh, quite significantly. So what happens when we uh, uh, add a beta-lactam? Um, we have something called the seesaw effect. Um, so it's a proposed mechanism of a vancomycin plus a beta-lactam um, that will ultimately try to accomplish um, a combination of several different things, essentially relating to more effectiveness of your usage of your vancomycin. 
So first, uh, with beta-lactam exposure, we will see a decrease in the expression of penicillin binding proteins. This will in turn decrease the um, thickness or the architecture of the cell wall back to its normal expression. Um, it'll also disrupt the function of these PVPs, kind of leading to the same um, uh, same cause. And then uh, by doing all this, once again, you just have just that really importance of reducing the thickness of that cell wall. But as we were talking and discussing about earlier, um, this is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. So how exactly is a beta-lactam, in this case, becoming uh, or helping or aiding uh, vancomycin? Well, it has to kind of do with a fine uh, fluctuation of how uh, MRSA is able to uh, withstand actually the expression of vancomycin or what it does in the presence of vancomycin. So, um, but once vancomycin is um, introduced to um, MRSA, you end up having these loosely linked and thickened cell walls that we discussed. Well, because of that, you actually end up having a reduction of your PVP4 and or PVP2A, um, which is what actually uh, drives or does the synthesis for um, some of this production in peptoglycan translocation. So uh, it's actually been shown that PVP2A is really essential for bacterial growth and uh, transpeptidase and also transglycase. Um, PVP4A has some role in that, but really PVP2 is the, um, the heavy component um, of those two that, um, that stretches it. So when you have this fluctuation um, and you have this reduction of PVP2A, you end up getting this increase in this PVP2 to drive wall cell assembly. So that's what's increasing your cell wall thickness. Um, so in order for it to increase the cell wall thickness, and then also increase the amount of D out and deoutening substrates, it has to actually increase, increase a certain PVP in itself. So from an overall standpoint, um, strains exposed to beta-lactams targeting PVP2 become more susceptible um, to vancomycin because beta-lactams are able to target PVP2, and we know that it's able to drive down the actual cell wall thickness as we described earlier with the events. Um, this has been shown through over, I, this is a light number, it's probably more than 20 at least at this point in time, um, in vitro studies exploring this combination. Um, we know that the majority have found synergy in some, or at least all strains. Um, there can be some variability between uh, bank-sensitive um, Staph aureus um, uh, bank intermediate staph aureus and bank resistance, um, or sorry, and bank um, and heterogeneous bank um, intermediate staph aureus when you kind of look at some of the in vitro data. But to put it in a very like quick perspective, um, one of the easiest studies to look at is what Tran and colleagues did. Um, they were able to look at several different um, common uh, beta lactams that are used, uh, so cefazolin, so cefepime, uh, ceftaroline, and nafcillin. Um, they took this and they looked at it in a 24-hour period and were able to see a synergistic bacterial benefit of adding that on to vancomycin. So here, looking at the vanc-sensitive staph aureus, you can see uh, with no combination, um, its e-test uh, was one. And then as you um, are able to add a beta-lactam agent, um, more specifically looking at cefazolin and ceftaroline, you actually get a significant um, between a 4- to 16-fold reduction um, overall in your MIC. So making it more susceptible um, to vancomycin at this point in time by adding on that beta-lactam. Again, looking at heterogeneous vanc um, intermediate staph aureus, you get the same type of effect. Um, by comparing the two, you can see there's a little bit of variability um, 
by how the uh, beta-lactams in themselves uh, lower the degree of the MIC for vancomycin. But from overall standpoint, you can really tell that cefazolin and ceftaroline are having the most activity, while cefepime and nafso in this case have some reduction, but it can be variable between the different isolates. And then looking at uh, vanc intermediate staph aureus, you can see, once again, that uh, MIC of four and that significant, you know, four to 16-fold increase by adding on a beta-lactam therapy. So what clinical data do we actually have to support this? Um, obviously, we all enjoy in vitro data, but what does it mean for, our, for clinicians and how it is going to you know, affect our patients? Um, so as far as clinical data, the stuff that came out most recently um, was all retrospective within a way. And then we have uh, one RCT, uh, randomized controlled trial that came after that. So looking at some of the earlier data, um, Kessano and colleagues uh, did beta-lactam plus a beta-lactam for at least 48 hours. Um, while clinical failure, um, there was a uh, percentage difference or what we would say uh, from an aspect, from a statistically significant difference, there was nothing there, but it did improve the rate of microbiological clearance, uh, which was statistically significant by one full day. Um, so going back to what we know um, earlier about the data that was shared that having this persistent bacteremia can uh, please or increase your odds ratio of having uh, mortality. So does that, does that improved rate of mycological clearance in this case going to translate out to that? Um, and then uh, early on, um, camera one was done by um, Davis and colleagues. They looked at vancomycin plus leucoxacillin. Um, the reason for this specific uh, beta-lactam was because it was done um, in a different country. Um, so this was a pilot study um, to facilitate a bigger uh, randomized control trial. Um, once again, they were able to show a decreased duration of bacteremia by one full day, and there was some uh, potential increase for renal toxicity at this point between uh, vancomycin and flucoxacillin, but nothing that uh, significantly stood out that would prevent this from progressing to a uh, randomized control trial. So then came about of camera two, which was the, the backbone or the build-off of the pilot study of camera one. So Tung and colleagues um, sought to see vancomycin or daptomycin plus an anti-staphylococcal beta-lactam, which they included flucoxacillin, cloxacillin, and cefazolin um, for seven days for MRSA bacteremia. Um, this was a multi-center randomized controlled trial. Uh, the way they dosed the vanc and the dapto, uh, they did vanc trough levels of 15 to 20, um, and they did dapto dosing 6 to 10. Um, because of the sites where they were, about 99% of the patients mostly received vancomycin. Um, so looking overall standpoint, um, you can, uh, looking at monotherapy on the left-hand side and combination therapy on the right-hand side, you can see their composite endpoint uh, did not meet any statistical significance, but bacteremia at day five, you can see that the combination um, therapy had a, uh, about a 9% uh, risk re uh, reduction overall in clearance of bacteremia. And then the bigger data that a lot of people focused on um, was AKI. Um, so within the combination group, there was a, about a 17% uh, difference uh, between the two favoring the combination to having more likely to cause AKI. Uh, this was uh, something that has uh, been addressed several times at conferences and I know is of, of peak interest um, to um, a lot of clinicians and hesitation about using uh, beta-lactic or using um, dual therapy, particularly a beta-lactam with vancomycin, but to really understand um, where this AK is coming from, you kind of have to dive deeper into the data. So when you look at actually the post-hoc analysis that they did, um, the 
significant majority of the patients. Um, so out of the a total of 31 patients that did experience an AKI, 30 of them were on VANC plus uh, flucloxacillin or cloxacillin, so the typical anti-staphylococcal beta-lactam, not what we associate with being just your first-generation cephalosporin. There's only one within the cefazolin group. Um, so that really raised some eyebrows that um, if you're going to proceed with combination therapy that favoring using cefazolin or a cephalosporin over our traditional anti-staphylococcal beta-lactams um, is more wise um, as far as an AKI standpoint. So in conclusion, um, they end up stating that uh, adding a beta-lactam to standard care didn't statistically benefit on a composite endpoint of um, death. However, you did get a decreased bacteremia at day five, but subsequently you did have an increased risk of AKI with that uh, post-doc analysis exploring that it was more specifically related to the anti-staphylococcal beta-lactam. Um, some limitations, um, these are what I derived from the study. Um, so it was VANC trough-based dosing. Uh, we do know from the PKPD of VANC that AUC dosing is an improved safety. And when you really get into that study, I, I took the supplementary and some of the other um, components, um, com additional materials of it, and really got into the VANC levels that they were dosing at and what their patients looked like. And there is some concern from my point of maybe not only did they have a higher risk of AKI because of um, the, uh, because of they were using trough-based dosing, but they were also using a trough-based dosing that was really aggressive. Um, if you look at their median troughs um, at day three, I think 17 to 18 is kind of where um, most of them are, which is we know as um, you can use your trough with some estimation of pharmacokinetic parameters and extrapolate out to an AUC, and th that would put them at a higher risk just having that elevated trough level. Um, and then also, uh, some of the findings may have been com uh, confounded by the high rates of AKI. So if the patient maybe didn't experience an AKI, could they have had a, a you know, a mortality benefit or, or greater benefit? And then um, about 40% of the patients uh, would be defined as a low risk group. Um, so when I say low risk, uh, this would be evaluating, you know, would this patient be an ideal candidate for dual therapy? So would they have a high burden infection? So about 40% of the patients in the study had a skin and soft tissue or IV slash central line source of bloodstream infection, which I believe we would all be in consensus here that those would be defined as a low risk group. So implications that I got from it, um, don't use VANC plus leucoxacillin or cloxacillin, or in our case it would be nasal or oxacillin because of the toxicity. Um, VANC plus ANCEF still has a potential benefit, specifically in the high risk groups. So these would be your um, endocarditis, your osteomyelitis, your epidural abscess, um, anything within that kind of realm of it. Um, and that it, we still obviously need to explore some more trials. We can't just, knowing that post-doc analysis can't solely harp upon um, its results to dictate how we should proceed forward. So um, pros of adding on a beta-lactam uh, to vancomycin is the seesaw effect that we discussed. Um, you can use lower troughs and lower AUCs, um, which would theoretically uh, should lend to more or less nephrotoxicity, but you do have the con side, which looks at uh, there has been some data to support that you do have an increased risk of AKI, though it might be drug-specific. Uh, drug um, there's controversy over um, whether decreased uh, duration of bacteremia and controversy over VANC MICs um, from an overall standpoint. Uh, some will argue, you know, that if you have a VANC MIC of two, that you should add on uh, a beta-lactam agent in this case, but you can still have clearance. It's just obviously at its higher breakpoint 
Um, and then the con to the decreased duration of bacteremia is there's no direct mortality benefit. So my major takeaway, um, especially particularly the fellows, would be that um, in high-risk groups, so people that are non-SSTI or non-line-related sources, the need for combination therapy should be considered upfront. So going back to our uh, patient, um, a CM or IVD drug user that presented with uh, staph aureus bacteremia, uh, which of the following impaired regimens would be most appropriate for this patient? Um, anybody can be free to comment out uh, what they would do or to put it within the chat. Um, yeah, that's exactly what um, I would go with as well. Um, I would do vancomycin, particularly in this case, because uh, it is someone that we would consider a high-risk patient with the history of IBDU. So, um, not having or not knowing it's coming from a line, they may be more likely to have endocarditis and needing that uh, dual therapy in this case to help get that clearance up front, and then to be determined if it does actually provide a uh, overall mortality benefit. Um, so, the next combination we'll hop to is DAPTO plus abelotinib, which I know this has been um, a little bit more prominent of evidence as of late, um, in particularly one particular beta-lactam. Um, so looking at the, the eptomycin PKPD, you can always kind of remember go big or go home. So um, it has a kind of two-pronged way of looking at its uh, pharmacokinetic diameter. So it actually has a peak MIC and AUC over MIC that uh, potentiates its actual killing. Um, so when you actually extrapolate that out, you can see as you as you give um, a higher mg per kg dose, you get a higher Cmax, and you also get a higher AUC. Thus, you get that higher ratio um, and higher um, kill log um, than you would, and faster kill log than you would um, with lower doses. So we do know that it's about 90 to 93% protein bound, um, so you can have some issues in patients that have um, al albumin issues um, or patients that are in septic shock. Um, like we mentioned, the higher doses does have that increased activity, and then um, with staph aureus, um, ideally to elicit a one kill log ratio from an in vitro standpoint, you need to have an AUC of MIC ratio of 666. So that's kind of why um, more lately about has come to use the higher dosing for staph aureus instead of the package insert that says to use six mix per kg. Uh, we advocate to use that eight to 10 mix per kg. So as far as its mechanism, um, so if you talk to Dr. Hanley, and I would agree with him the same way, we really don't know the mechanism of daptomycin. Uh, there's been several different um, proponents that have been suggested of how it works. The, the uh, mechanism we're all probably most familiar with is that it, it complexes with um, calcium ions um, within the cell wall, or with, uh, sorry, algomers with outside the cell wall that help to essentially create a negatively charged uh, phospholipid head, and this depolarizes the cell, causing a leaking of ions and ultimately cell death. So it kind of acts like a, a cationic peptide um, is attracted to a negative charge um, within the cell wall. So if you think about that it's a um, cationic peptide and then it wants to go to a negatively cell wall, how is a bacteria going to formulate a resistance to get that? Well, relatively easily. Um, with prolonged exposure, you get an increase in bacterial membrane positive surface charge. So something called it uh, MPRF mutation um, that we're associated with for its most likely development for resistance. And then also it alter, um, creates some alterations in the bacterial uh, membrane fluidity. 
So with prolonged exposure, you do have this increase in amount of positive charges. So you either have to find a way to give more drug, which could potentially lead to toxicities, or find a way to cause the uh, uh, the polarization of that membrane to go back to its uh, to more negative state. Um, so daptomycin can have more binding areas. So that's what comes along when we add in our beta-lactam. So once again, you have this terminology called the seesaw effect. So when you're able to give um, a beta-lactam, you have an increase in the net negative surface negativity and a decrease in the positive surfactivity, like we were talking about. So getting back to that uh, neutral state or almost negative state of the cell wall, allowing more daptomycin to bind. Um, then uh, we get that enhanced daptomycin binding for what it is. So overall, uh, you do uh, get a more negative net charge. Um, this can be seen and uh, well documented with various beta-lactams. Um, we'll discuss more more specifically um, into uh, ceftaroline um, and ceftriaxone, cefazolin, and those. So to get really into the mechanistics of how this occurs, so um, when daptomycin is exposed to um, Staph aureus, what Staph aureus does is it um, induces a cell membrane polarization and um, reduced cell wall thickness, causing that alterations and um, functions of important proteins in the cell wall structure. So you get that overall more positive charge. Um, what it specifically does, it has an increase in septation in sites of, of division through PBPA. So what happens is to um, create um, that polarization of, of the wall, it actually has to increase PBP1, which PBPA is kind of a, a substrate for PBP1 um, activity within cell wall division. So going back and referring to what are our PBPs too, so we know for PBP2 within Staph aureus, it actually helps with the cell wall um, texture and the translocation and transpeptidation that helps uh, help uh, the dialidine aspects within that. So with daptomycin, we're looking more towards PBP1, which was a little bit about, but it's most strongly associated with daptomycin potentiation because of how it's able to um, is able to be a compensatory mechanism uh, with exposure to daptomycin through increasing its substrate or PPA cell wall division. So uh, it's really that primary driver for cell wall division rather than the peptoglycan biosynthesis per se. So from an overall standpoint, PVP1 blockade is our strong, uh, the strongly most associated with daptomycin uh, potentiation of activity. So beta-lactams with affinity for PVP1 enhance the anti-MRS activity of daptomycin. Um, and then beta-lactams that actually target PVP1 and 2 give the uh, most potent effect um, from an overall standpoint. And we can see um, the reasons we are able to um, clearly define that is looking really at the in vitro data to know uh, which one binds PVP2 and PVP1 better. Um, so from an overall standpoint, uh, these are a, a growth control plate with colony forms looking at a colony forming units on the left-hand side and on the bottom as time uh, zero to 72 hours. And so this is really uh, one of the more um, nuanced that showed uh, how well um, daptomycin does with ceftaroline when compared to other combinations. So you can see this purple line represents and the increased dosage that we talked about earlier that we had been pushing for daptomycin. And this actual blue line right here actually represents ceftaroline at 600 Q8. But what's actually extremely interesting is when you put those two together, um, you get this dramatic kill log of 
very quickly off the beginning that's actually sustained um, in a lot lower concentration for a longer period of time than when you see with the other combinations or other potential single agents. So this really is what kind of jump-started the um, daptomycin plus uh, ceftaroline in this case may be able to have better activity because of this. So the reason for this is what we referred to earlier. Ceftaroline does have that enhanced binding to PVP2 through its mechanism, particularly PVP2A. It's able to get into that deep cleft that the other beta-lactams aren't able to get into. And then it also has that PVP1 binding. So uh, what we learned from an in vitro standpoint is that it really enhances depth of activity by reducing cell wall thickness, but then also it does um, create um, some biofilm, um, anti-biofilm properties that you would think about with like a rifampin um, in particular, uh, not so much associated with the beta-lactam. So getting more specific um, down to beta-lactams, because uh, I, from a standpoint, we don't always are always going to jump to our depth dose of terolene. Um, you can see that um, beta-lactams with affinity for PVP1, um, example, cefazolin and meropenem have a lot more enhancement of beta of daptomycin's um, activity than just the other agents. And you can see here just a simple kilolog ratio time again. Um, cefazolin has that greater time, and so does meropenem when compared to um, cefoxin and ceftriaxone. So from a clinical data standpoint, um, we have several uh, retrospective um, studies uh, that showed uh, daptomycin plus a beta-lactam did, um, sorry, this is a case report, um, beta-lactam plus uh, daptomycin did show a um, potential endovascular source successful outcome in a persistent source. And then really jumping into when that data released about daptomycin ceftriolene, we started to see more case series and more retrospectives at that point in time. Um, the most prominent one being McCurry and colleagues, um, they did daptomycin versus ceftriolene versus and standard of care. Um, within that, we were able to see an actual 30-day mortality uh, benefit for the daptomycin plus ceftaroline. Um, the study does have its nuances and issues, but I'm not going to dive into those. It just more or less gave us the idea that, hey, maybe this actual combination does offer a potential mortality benefit. Uh, fast forward a few years, um, Jorgensen and colleagues um, did a uh, retrospective um, study at this point in time of DAPTO plus a beta-lactam for at least 24 hours, not particularly focusing on um, ceftaroline. And they were able to show that your 60-day mortality and reoccurrence um, when using a DAPTO plus a beta-lactam, you did have an adjusted odds ratio that showed uh, that favored um, combination therapy when compared just to DAPTO alone. Um, but once again, you did have this um, acute kidney injury come about with the uh, beta-lactam on there. So when they were actually looking at combination therapies, they did not limit it just to um, our traditional anti-staphylococcal uh, beta-lactams or first-gen cephalosporin beta-lactam. They included all beta-lactams in there. So um, we do know that that has some, um, some issues that needed to be explored, but never really got into a post-hoc analysis. Um, so implications from their study, it did continue to open that door for a um, randomized control trial um, to uh, look at uh, DAPTO plus a beta-lactam because we were seeing these um, improved patient outcomes persistently within our retrospective data. Um, this ended up being uh, the consequence of that. Um, Garrick and colleagues, they looked at DAPTO plus ceftaroline within 72 hours versus standard of care uh, monotherapy. This was a randomized, prospective, um, open-label trial with computer-generated assignments. 
Um, everybody had an ID consult at the time. Um, they may not come for duration of bacteremia and then hospital patient mortality while also looking at 60 and 90 day mortality. Um, extrapolating out what they were able to find. Um, so when you compared um, the combination to the monotherapy, as far as mortality, um, there looked to be superiority clearly with the combination therapy uh, from a numbers basis. Um, and then once you even looked at bacteremia length of stay, um, those did not show any um, statistically significant um, data, but the main thing that harping on was the data supporting a mortality benefit with the combination therapy. Um, so take home point just is that, that standard therapy showed a significant risk in mortality compared to combination. Um, so from their conclusions, they concluded that this combination therapy could reduce inpatient hospital mortality compared to your standard treatment. Um, there were some significant limitations. Um, this trial was actually stopped short. Um, it was stopped short by the review committee um, that was oversighting the trial. Um, when you really kind of get into the, uh, looking, you know, at trials that do stop short, there can be an exaggeration of early benefits because there's only about 40 people within this study. Um, and what was also interesting with this study is there's no, there was no predefined rule for stopping. So inherently, it was stopped just because of the percentages they were seeing. Um, and then a small cohort. Um, there were some inconsistent source control measures, and these results really haven't been seen before in previous studies with staph aureus. We haven't ever seen a staph aureus study with 0% mortality, which is what this one was showing. So implications, um, so when a patient uh, with severe endovascular infection, um, unable to um, clear, um, unable to clear their therapy, or maybe if they're up front, they're extremely high risk, um, consideration of staph trailing to your standard of care may be warranted. Um, so once again, kind of going through the pros and cons, they end up lining the exact same as adding on a beta-lactam to daptomycin. Um, so getting to our case again, uh, we actually started um, CM on Vank plus Afazolin. Um, He's had blood cultures that have been persistently positive for seven days. Um, we started to notice physical signs of what would be um, potentially endocarditis. Um, he did develop an AKI and he did get diagnosed with MRSA endocarditis with septic emboli and acute care surgery is saying he's not a surgical candidate. So in this case, um, which of the following antibiotic plans would be most appropriate? Um, if anybody feels to make an unmute their mic and say what they would like to do. Uh, yeah, um, at this point in time, it would seem most that this patient would most benefit from Daptoseftaroline. Um, so getting to the major takeaway points for combination therapy for MRSA, um, high-risk groups, uh, the need for combination therapy should be considered. Um, some of the newer papers have utilized an IL-10. IL I know that's uh, a risk stratification marker to see who would be higher risk. I know that's not readily available at all places, but something to consider if you do have it. Um, I would avoid combination therapy with anti-staphylococcal beta-lactams. And I would try to initiate combination therapy within the first 72 hours, ideally 24, um, particularly if there's issues with source control and uh, the clearance of bacteremia, um, or particularly if there's issues with source control. And then to determine the duration of time for combination therapy, really source control and clearance of bacteremia can dictate that. Um, the institution that I previously came from before going to Moffitt, our actual standard of care when staff RS was identified, um, in a bloodstream was to start a uh, bank ANSEF up front. Um, so now transitioning to our other um, 
Other pers- uh, other bug of interest is Enterococcus. I think a lot of people think of Enterococcus as just kind of a giant nuance. It's you know typically associated with every intra-abdominal abscess you ever see, and who knows if it's actually being a virulent organism or if it's just hanging out. Um, but it does have multiple virulent factors, just like um, MRSA, which is toxins and biofilms. Um, it can sustain for an extremely long period of time on surfaces, so a hand hygiene is an extremely important way to have a decrease in these amount of infections. Um, it does create a high mortality, um, which you do end up getting um, a severe infection with it. And broad spectrum on multiple courses of antibiotics um, do increase your colonization of enterococcus. Um, you can think about it, not too many of our broad spectrum antibiotics really target enterococcus, and a lot of them target um, our gut flora, thus we get an increase in the amount of intercrocus within our GI system. Um, of the most clinically relevant species are Fecalis and Facium. Um, we know that we more often see Fecalis and it's more virulent and with the majority sensitive to ampicillin. Um, and then Facium tends to be less virulent, but the majority of it is resistant to ampicillin and vancomycin. Um, we know that vanc resistance with efacalis, I'm sorry, with efacium is associated with higher mortality, um, longer length of stay, and higher direct medical costs. So the way um, enterococcus becomes resistant um, to uh, particular um, antibiotics, in this case, we'll focus on the beta-lactams is that it has an increase in what, what is called PUP5 within its cell wall system. So uh, beta-lactams do not have a great um, ability to bind to that. Um, they have a reduced binding affinity. So um, it actually increases uh, more so um, an overproduction of that, uh, which facilitates ampicillin resistance. Um, and then if you uh, look at some of the other mechanisms, um, you can see around that it does, it has a wide variety of um, that is able to apply towards different variations of antibiotics. Um, so two potential um, scenarios we'll be looking at is efecalis um, endovascular uh, infection, so whether you to use AMP or GENT or AMP for tetraxone. And then um, for enterococcus facium, looking at daptomycin plus the beta-lactam, and also looking at some newer data that just actually came out about a month ago. I forgot to update this slide, sorry. Um, I have my introduction slide updated, but also at phosphomycin plus daptomycin. So to jump right into it, um, efecalis. So we have a uh, JW, a 80-year-old with a pastoral history of uh, myocardiopathy, status post of mitral valve replacement. Um, he ends up presenting with a enterococcus fecalis, a bloodstream infection, and has a uh, five millimeter vegetation noted on his mitral valve. Um, so in this case, what would be the most appropriate combination to start out with and would even combination therapy be um, the appropriate in this case? Um, so from previous literature, we uh, decided that um, ampicillin has a, what they would say a lack of bacterial cytal activity. Um, against enterococcus, and that enterococcus does have a really high ability to form biofilms. Um, so what they mean by uh, lax uh, bacterial cytal activity is that when you put it within a petri dish um, and you look at the kill forming units, um, you have less than 99% of your colony forming units killed within a 24 hour period. It's actually 90 to 99%. Comparatively, if something that's cytal, you have greater than 99%. Um, and then also with um, a consideration we need to for efecalis as our source of infection. So getting right into it, uh, we'll take a look at AMP and GENT first. 
um, AMP, um, like we had said earlier, to really get that uh, this mostly classified as bacteriostatic versus enterococcus to really get that bactericidal effect. We have to give a tremendous amount of dosage over a persistent long period of time. And just from its pharmacokinetics, it doesn't readily uh, work out that well. So how did we get uh, the idea for, uh, for to use an aminoglycoside for synergy for enterococcus? Well, um, taking a step back and getting to more the in vitro side of things, um, we know that the majority of enterococcus have a really low level of resistance to aminoglycosides, mainly because the aminoglycoside can't get through the cell wall. Um, so when you're able to give a cell wall inhibitor um, with an aminoglycoside, it actually facilitates its uptake and overcomes that small intrinsic resistance. So when looking at in vitro studies, it, this combination was shown to be synergistic, um, but there are concerns, obviously, with prolonged therapy and potentially nephrotoxic um, ability for it to happen. So looking at some of the uh, studies from the early 2000s, um, you can see that uh, these a lot of these came out um, looking at a dual therapy. So median duration of therapy in this case was uh, 42 days of the cell walk division and two weeks of the aminoglycoside. Um, it only had a 16% mortality with a 3% chance of relapse. Um, and that mortality was not um, associated with shortened aminoglycoside course. So this study was really to show that we can give this synergy um, combination up front and actually limit the amount of overall time we have to give the aminoglycoside. So traditionally with endocarditis, we know that we're giving a prolonged up to six-week course or beyond six-week course and giving the aminoglycoside now. We can limit it to a two-week course. And then another um, one additional study actually took them um, head to head, uh, two weeks versus four to six weeks of JET um, by in circulation 2013. Uh, even to help with this, the majority of patients did receive once daily aminoglycosides instead of the traditional three times daily. And then when you looked at the one year event survival, they were comparable. And then when looking at the um, estimated GFR discharge, you can see that the two week period of aminoglycoside versus the four to six weeks of it had a significantly uh, lower overall reduction of eGFR. So, so they had less amount of renal nephrotoxicity. It's just really validated that you could do just two weeks of your aminoglycoside if you have to go that route and it's associated with less nephrotoxicity. So next we'll jump over to um, two beta lactams, which I know that we always think about that uh, can't ever be the right answer. But if you think about it, um, when you actually give a beta lactam and a beta lactam inhibitor, you're actually giving two beta lactams at once. You just really don't think about it because of the core structures. But to get into AMP and ceftriaxone, um, like we discussed previously, we know that um, ceftriaxone doesn't have great or doesn't have realistic activity should be the word to use against enterococcus it can't be used as a monotherapy agent but we know that pvp4 and pvp5 are the most important for antibiotic antibiotic activity so that's why um enterococcus increases pvp5 uh, when it tries to develop resistance to ampicillin so looking at our different agents we know that ampicillin has the most activity following all the way down the carbapenems um, so they have exclusive activity towards four and five, but when you look at cephalosporins, they actually actually most at two and three. So this doesn't 
Um, it, this doesn't elicitate an actual, you know, kill response or killing effect towards enterococcus, but it can decrease its cell wall element and cause some uh, significant problems for the organism. So, uh, what actually happens is that um, ampicillin partially saturates PBP4 and 5. So, when you have that happen, um, PBP3 and PBP2 actually compensate to form cell wall synthesis. So, we have that, what well, we end up getting that bacterial um, static effect. So, you don't get that full, full on um, killing effect that you would have liked to see, particularly in a high burden infection. So, when you actually add on ceftriaxone to this, it binds in substrates like we were discussing the PBP2 and 3. So when you combine those together, you get the partial saturation of four and five and the total saturation of two and three. So that compensation is actually not able to happen. And so you get a full-on synergistic cytal effect. Um, so how do we know this works? Um, it all does stem from retrospective studies. Um, the first one really being an in vitro study that compared uh, AMP plus ceftriaxone plus is AMP plus GENT. And it looked at reduction of bacterial counts of vegetations in vitro. And it showed that um, AMP plus ceftriaxone was as effective as AMP plus an amino glycoside. Um, take that further. And uh, same people actually ended up doing an observation open label trial. Um, very small amount of participants um, ended up having what really differentiated um, high level resistance amino glycoside efecalis versus non high. And they showed that in the high-level resistant enterococcus, you can use AMP ceftriaxone in these cases to um, subsidize for it. So it ended up being an, a potential possibility. Then Fernandez and colleagues um, had a bigger observational trial where they compared the two specific regimens and showed no difference overall in mortality, um, but you and uh, but you did see a significant difference in new renal failure, particularly in the aminoglycoside group, the AMP plus GENT. Um, so from this, it was regarded that um, ampicillin plus ceftriaxone is as effective regardless of high-level resistance aminoglycoside status um, with minimal risk of renal failure. Um, so some pros and cons of this. So when using ceftriaxone, you do get less nephrotoxicity. You don't have to have any drug-level monitoring. Um, and it's as effective from data that we know. Um, the downside of that is you can get potential increase in C. diff and drug-resistant organisms. And then also you do have the increased risk of beta two beta-lactam-related adverse effects. Um, GENT, we know, uh, PRO, you can just only have to use it for two weeks and do the once-daily dosing to have it less nephrotoxicity. But from an overall standpoint, it does still carry that nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity. Requires the drug monitoring, and you can have an increase in resistance, um, which makes the combination inf uh, um, ineffective. Uh, because of time, I'm just going to skip over this question. It would be fairly straightforward. Um, and trying to jump into our high-dose daptomycin uh, plus a beta-lactam. Uh, so why don't we consider uh, combination therapy for daptomycin? Um, so we know with efacium, uh, delays in appropriate therapy and um, inappropriate drug exposure, we have a higher increase in uh, morbidity, mortality. Um, and then uh, we do have evidence from an in vitro and some uh, in vivo standpoint that um, there is reduced efficacy, particularly in isolates with MICs of three to four. And then um, you can have some undetectable potential mutations uh, that may render your doses uh, that six mg per kick inadequate. So what actually started this high-dose daptomycin um, was some previous 
retrospective studies indicating that you might need um, higher doses. But then Avery and colleagues in CID got some pulled data from observational studies. Uh, they did a PKPD model to determine the free AUC MIC threshold to predict survival at 30 days and showed that you needed to be greater than uh, this number of uh, AUC of 27.43 um, comparatively. So this was a survival uh, pharmacodynamic threshold expo explored in Monte Carlo simulation. So what does that actually extrapolate to? Um, what it extrapolates to is the M uh, particular MIC, in particular dose you need to give uh, in order to achieve that. So when you uh, really focusing on the um, higher MICs of two to four, you can see that in both males and females, you need to actually give that higher 10 mg per kg to 12 mg per kg dosing to really achieve those MICs and hit that threshold. Um, so then comes about um, high-dose uh, deptomycin plus a beta-lactam and what does it offer? And then also looking at phosphomycin because we know previously that data suggests reduced efficacy in these higher MICs. So what does it actually happen when you add on a beta-lactam? Well, we know there's a bunch of robust in vitro data, just like there is with MRSA at this point in time. Um, and studies suggest that really it's about the saturation of several PPPs for the antimicrobial activity that allows this. So once again, um, it does, it has this saturation that reduces the net positive bacterial surface charge. And so you get the enhanced bacterial cytal effect of daptomycin. So then Avery and colleagues went back again and found some observational studies of patients who received DAPTO plus an additional agent, which was focusing on beta-lactams, and discovered that through a PKPD model that your association between your free AUC and MIC greater than 12.3, so significantly less, offered that survival benefit. So once again, pulling up this table, you can see when you even give DAPTO at eight mg per kg um, at this point in time, along with the beta-lactam, you have a, a clinically more successful chance of hitting that MIC threshold that's needed. But really, once you get up to MICs of um, really once you get like to two to four, you really should still be using 10 mix per kg to 12 mix per kg along with that beta lactam, particularly in MICs of three to four. So there is some limited clinical data that shows this. Um, it's from Chung and colleagues. Uh, they actually have both studies about this and with phosphomycin. Um, from an overall standpoint, you really can see that uh, Daptomyce is less than or equal to 2, Adapto plus the beta-lactam, you did have a significantly lower mortality. Um, when Daptomyces were greater than or equal to 4, there was no survival benefit. So from an overall standpoint, really once you have Adaptomyce of 4 or higher, you really should consider just using a different agent and not even trying dual therapy at this point in time. Um, so they were able to conclude that high-dose DAPTO plus the beta-lactam might improve survival and that this regimen might particularly improve survival when your DAPTO MIC is two or less. Um, so when you do have a VRE infection with or without source control, it would be wise to potentially consider a DAPTO plus beta-lactam uh, regimen, uh, particularly for amp uh, ampicillin or ceftaroline in the cases of activity-wise uh, for um, killing effects. And then the same same group looked at uh, the safety and clinical outcomes of I'm sorry of daptomycin plus phosphomycin. They actually have IV phosphomycin um, where they're at. So they're able to look at this. Um, Characteristic-wise, you can see 
Uh, they split it into non-survivors and survivors. Um, the majority of patients had a 10 mg per kg dose of DAPTO, while phospho was at about 16 uh, grams per day. Um, and then when they did their logistic regression, uh, the points of interest to focus on were that um, your DAPTO dose offered an um, improved chance um, of mortality uh, benefit um, chances of that. So higher doses uh, made an impact. Um, things that negatively affected mortality were your PIT bacteremia score, um, your phospho-MIC, and your Charleston comorbidity index. So obviously the more severe the patient bacteremia and then having resistance to phospho-MIC in this case uh, led to worse clinical outcomes from an overall standpoint. So pros, um, you get the enhancement of uh, PK, the depth of PKPD, lowering your targets needed. Um, you're able to overcome and su um, suppress some of those undetected resistance. Um, there is a survival benefit, but it's all observational data now. And then for the cons, um, there is um, a lack of uh, significant clinical data to support this. This stuff is you kind of still have some weak recommendations. And there is some uh, potential um, evidence of increased risk of um, AKI really extrapolated from the MRSA studies. Um, so in conclusion, um, dual therapy is obviously going to continue to be an evolving topic. Um, it has robust in vitro data and observational data with the trend in positive clinical data. Um, but really the devil's in the details, I think, personally, when you decide uh, when I should move about with combination therapy. And with that, um, I will take any questions.